listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 174. Today, we're going to talk to some of the stop-and-shop striking workers who turned my childhood grocery store into a site of solidarity, and even got a ruling from some local rabbis that crossing a picket line is not kosher for Passover. But first, the news. Faculty members at the University of Pittsburgh have been organizing for a while a campaign that includes adjuncts all the way up to tenured faculty. On the heels of the graduate workers' union vote this week currently being counted at the same university, I spoke with two members of the faculty campaign about their organizing and where things stand now. I'm Melinda Chico-Chopo. I'm a lecturer in the psychology department at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm Caroline Lemack-Brickman. I'm an adjunct in the English department at the University of Pittsburgh. So we are talking today because you are both involved in a union drive that's sort of unusual because it involves faculty from adjunct to full-time tenured. So tell us a little bit about, to start with, how the campaign got started and how you both got involved with it. I got involved with the campaign about two years ago, but it's my understanding that it's been happening for at least a good four years mm-hmm. now and originated with some faculty uh, in the English department reaching out to USW requesting to uh, form a union uh, Mm -hmm. with USW. So it's been a long, long campaign. And I wasn't there at the the start of it, but Mm -hmm. that's my understanding of how it began. And so we started officially collecting authorization cards in January 2018. Mm-hmm. And um, a year later, in just this past January, we filed those authorization cards with the Public Labor Relations Board and, um, and asked for a union election at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as the, Sarah, your question about yeah. sort of organizing across ranks, because I guess a lot of, you hear a lot of stories about just adjuncts organizing mm-hmm. or um, in a lot of cases just graduate students organizing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's true that here at the University of Pittsburgh, the, the graduate students are also organizing and they're forming their own local. But I don't know, our decision to organize across ranks has been really great. Um, it's, been, it's been good for solidarity across ranks. Melinda and I have both been um, really active on the organizing committee, and we've been having a lot of organizing conversations with a lot of different people in different departments mm-hmm. and sort of different ranks. And um, it's been my experience that when you when you talk to adjuncts or people with more precarious positions, you know, maybe they would be afraid of getting involved, but then when they find out that the tenured faculty in their department are supportive, mm-hmm. that makes them less afraid. Mm-hmm. And similarly, there are a lot of tenured folks who maybe don't immediately see the reason for a union because, you know, they have benefits, they're fairly well paid, they aren't going to lose their jobs. And so you sort of say, you know, we'll do it for the adjuncts. <laughs> and, and, and they get involved out of, um, out of a kind of altruism or, or solidarity in that sense. Everyone knows that, you know, academia is totally unfairly structured by this two-tiered system, you know. Right. And so it's, it's been nice to organize kind of across the tenure line because people do it for each other in a way. Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think one of the things that, that we also hear a lot from adjunct campaigns is they have trouble getting solidarity from full-time faculty, but when you pull everybody together, you give people a variety of different reasons to connect to the campaign. No, exactly. And so... Um, 
of course, for people in precarious positions, you know, more money and more job security are the most urgent demands. But for people with full-time positions, you know, with contracts that extend a really long time into the future, I think we've been seeing that the demands are more for things like transparency, also better child care. What else, Melinda? The idea of having a stronger voice in how the university is run and, you know, a voice that has some power behind it, I think that's something that is appealing to faculty across all ranks. So tell us where the campaign is now. The grad students, I know, are voting, are counting their votes now. So um, how will that, do you think, impact the campaign of the, the rest of the faculty? Yeah, the grad students voted last week, and they're counting the votes now. We should know on Friday, yeah, on Friday. when I've been told. There's a lot of solidarity between our movements. I know we're very supportive of, of the grad students unionizing. The, the, the administration kind of gave them hell over their election. Yeah. Um, they had a series of really brutal hearings where um, just again and again, the administration came up against them and said, you know, no, you're not employees, you're not workers, you know, you're students, you're apprentices in this field. And they just, well, they won those hearings and they won the right to an election. And that's really, really great. But um, it left a kind of bad taste in our mouths because mm-hmm. the Basically, the, the administration tried so hard to prevent the possibility of a grad election right. that now, you know, we, we don't really feel like they're approaching our election in good faith, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I also feel like the administration's tactics against the grad students backfired on them in terms of faculty, because I, you know, remember any time there was this anti-union email that would go out to faculty about the grad campaign, you know, we'd be having conversations with faculty, and and that would come up, and they would be like, "Oh, yeah, this is terrible. Why don't they just let them vote?" You know. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it actually did some work to agitate faculty to be more pro-union because they weren't viewing the administration as as taking a neutral stance. It was very clear that they were fighting this unionization, and even just fighting the grad students even having an election at all. That was Melinda Chicachopo and Caroline Lemick Brickman of the University of Pittsburgh. April brings many occasions to remember the workers who have died in the job. April 28th is Workers' Memorial Day, and the date also roughly coincides with the sixth anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Bangladesh, as well as the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire that led to breakthroughs in labor laws in New York. But in New York this month, the memorials hit even closer to home. Three construction workers died earlier this month within a week of each other, all perishing in preventable accidents at construction sites. On April 13th, 34-year-old Gregory Echevarria of Brooklyn was crushed to death in a crane accident when he was hit by a falling piece of counterweight used for loading. Earlier that week, Nelson Salinas, 51, was killed by falling debris at an east side building site. And also that week, Eric Mendoza, 23, fell off the roof of a 13-story building site in Brooklyn. The three deaths were probably not the last such tragedies New York City will see this year. According to NICOSH, in 2017, 69 construction workers died in New York State. 
New York State's construction fatality rate has increased by 39% in the past five years. 20 of those workers who died in 2017 were in New York City and coincides with building boom. But fatality rates are somewhat improving, but they remain stubbornly high for a trade that should be one of the most highly regulated in the city. Moreover, falls are the dominant source of fatal injury. In New York City alone, over the past 10 years, 78 workers died due to falls, which on average accounted for 46% of all construction deaths and 55% of construction deaths in 2017. There are many factors that lead to death and injury in this sector, but the low wages, the marginalization of workers of color, particularly immigrants, and the lack of union representation have left these workers extremely vulnerable to abuse, unsafe conditions, and intimidation from employers if they dare speak out about labor and safety violations. Meanwhile, the outsized power of big construction firms and developers in the city and the city's politics also makes this industry extremely hard to hold accountable, as they are extremely influential and have historically resisted regulatory reforms in Albany and in New York City. Although Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, does provide some oversight, under the Trump administration, federal enforcement has generally grown weaker. And according to NICOSH, the average fine amount in 2017 cases that involved the death of a construction worker was just $21,644. It's basically less than a year's salary for a typical established construction worker, and it's pretty easy for a big developer to stomach this simply as the cost of doing business. The loss to the worker's family, of course, is immeasurable, and some communities suffer disproportionately. Latinx workers are more at risk of fatal injury than others, accounting for 17% of New York State worker fatalities, but only 10% of the general population. And while workplace deaths are declining overall, according to NICOSH, nationwide, Latinx worker fatalities in all industries have increased by 10.5%. It's a telling measure of how some workers' lives are literally worth less than others under our current legal system. In other faculty news this week, and on a different side of the union spectrum, the Rutgers University faculty also have a broad-based union on their campus, and they just won an exciting new contract by bringing the tenets of bargaining the common good to the university. I spoke with Deepa Kumar, faculty member and union president at Rutgers, about how they did it. We are talking because you have a new contract at Rutgers. So first off, give us a little bit of a rundown on what's in this contract and what particularly is sort of new and surprising in this contract. So we took an intersectional approach to our organizing. That is, we not only wanted to advance on the economic and class demands, particularly for our most vulnerable members, which is graduate employees who have not seen a wage increase in a few years, Mm -hmm. but also our non-tenure track faculty. In our last contract, we actually got them a 43% wage increase and we got a promotion series for them. This time we want to actually increase their job security even more. And we're a progressive union. So whatever we got in terms of our salary package, we divided that uh, evenly so that people at the lower end of the spectrum got more money. So we won quite big in terms of the economic demands, things that actually impact everybody uh, on a, in a whole series of ways. But more than that, what made this contract historic for us was my union is almost 50 years old. Right. Uh, what made this historic is that we actually won some significant gender and race equity demands, and that was a historic first for us. Tell us a little bit more about that. What we did is that a few years before our contract expired, we got a team of people together 
to first of all do a climate survey to determine what the conditions were for women and for people of color and to see what it is that we can do to actually improve those conditions. Now, keep in mind, of course, as we're doing this, on the one hand, these surveys are extremely popular with women and faculty of color. We're getting numbers far in excess of anything we've got for other union surveys. But at the same time, there's pushback, right? There are people who believe that a union should just be about bread and butter issues mm -hmm. and these quote-unquote special interests right. <laughs> shouldn't uh, determine what we do. But in fact, that's completely wrong because if you are a woman or a person of color and you are doing the same job as your white or your male colleagues, it is a union issue to fight for pay equity, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a woman or a person of color, and you are stuck in a particular rank because you face uh, disproportionate pressures to do service work, to do care work, and you're not rewarded for that, that is a union issue. So we have to slowly win people to the idea mm -hmm. that fighting around gender, fighting around race is very much a part of the class struggle, and it's how you build unity across various groups. Do you want to know what we want? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so... We, for the first time in the history of our union, we now have a full uh, chapter, an article is what we call it, in the contract that addresses gender, race, and diversity. We have $20 million for diversity hiring. We have a committee that's been formed to actually look into structural changes at the university. This is significant because this committee will be half union yeah. and half management. The history of at Rutgers, and I'm sure at every other university, is there's a lot of lip service paid to diversity, yada, 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 yeah. and equity, but nothing really happens. And certainly that was true at Rutgers. You know, mm -hmm. all sorts of people have, uh, faculty have been involved in producing task force reports and this and that. And they, there's a big fanfare when the report is done and there's a big meeting and press coverage yeah. and nothing ever changes, right? right? So what we did is we gathered everything that people have done over the last 20-some years and we put forward very forceful demands around increasing racial diversity in our faculty because the situation such as it was was appalling. New Jersey is an extremely diverse state. We have 20% uh, of our residents who are Latino or Latina and we have 15% who are African-Americans. If you look at Asians and South Asians and Middle Easterners and so on, more than half the New Jersey population are non-white people. But at Rutgers, we only have 4.5% uh, African-American and 4.5% uh, Latinx. And this is deeply problematic in terms of the learning conditions right. for our very diverse student body. So we've won big on that. So tell us more about the gains around gender and, and race-based pay equity. Right. This is the part that's truly historic in terms of our contract. We did the research and we found that systematically women faculty, same job, same unit, and so on. We were comparing apples to apples, mm -hmm. and we found that women faculty earned less. So we put forward a process which basically involves people going through various steps 
with binding arbitration at the end of it mm-hmm. to actually demand equal pay for equal work. This has never existed before in Rutgers history. Um, usually, if you had pay inequities, if you were a woman, then you would bring it to the dean and it would be at the discretion of the dean to say, eh, maybe not, what have you. Mm-hmm. Now we actually have compensation review boards. We have an appeal process. And then if through all this, it's still not a favorable decision, a person has a right to file a grievance with binding arbitration, which means it's enforceable. That is really significant because what that means is that not just women and people of color, which are mentioned in our contract, but everyone covered under our anti-discrimination article, which includes uh, people with disabilities, the LGBTQ community, okay. and uh, people of you know various national origins and so on, cannot be discriminated anymore at Rutgers University. And this is significant not just for us, but you know you look across the United States, there are massive pay inequities for the okay. same job. Women earn less for the same job. People of color earn less. And to actually, you know, make real the platitudes that various administrations, uh, you know, claim into a contract that's enforceable, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned a little bit some of the pushback that you got in working on the race and gender demands. But talk about the internal organizing that you had to do to get to this point. So, you know, when you win a big victory, there's an assumption that somehow this is a powerful, well-organized union. And to be honest, that was not where we started. At least when I came onto the leadership body uh, nine years ago, Mm -hmm. it was a service model of unionism. Mm -hmm. That is to say, there was a very strong belief that members didn't have to be involved in any kind of mobilizing that the union contract enforcement staff would take care of everyone's needs and all the union had to do is fight around bread and butter issues. Problem is that that may have worked at a different point in time, but and it did to some extent in the 1990s, but it really wasn't going to work in the era of austerity, particularly after 2008. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, we had a horrible contract. It's, you know, there were wage freezes, there were give backs and so on. And that's the moment at which some of us who have a more social justice union approach were able to put forward an understanding that it's important for our union to go beyond this kind of bread and butter approach Mm -hmm. and to start actually mobilizing our members and demanding not just, you know, what we need in terms of our salaries, but, uh, you know, building uh, ties to the community and so forth. So. That took, that took a while. We had to actually hire organizers like Shelley Wolf, for instance, and a whole series of others. We had to build up a shop steward or a what we call a department rep network mm-hmm. so that there are actual ties that we have um, to uh, rank and file members. And it's that slow, painstaking work combined mm-hmm. with actually fighting around issues that are not necessarily negotiable, right? Right, So we fought around the Pearson uh, learning management system, and we defeated it. We fought around a reorganization in the School of Arts and Sciences Mm -hmm. with secretarial labor being undermined and so on, um, and we won that. So it gave people a sense that we can actually do things even between contracts. But really, it was only after Trump got elected and we took up social justice demands. Our mm-hmm. union has had uh, students come and organize 
in our uh, office now for the last seven years. And so it was natural that in the Trump era, when the Muslim ban happened, mm -hmm. that students would pour into, undergraduate students would pour into our office, and that became the hub from which we had anti-Trump demonstrations against the Muslim ban, against attacks on DACA. Yeah. We've also been organizing to reduce uh, or to freeze the cost of tuition to make a public education more affordable. Mm -hmm. And so those sorts of things, the social justice demands, then made faculty and grads who were not paying that much attention to the union start to see the union as a place where their social movement work yeah. can actually uh, be realized. Right. And so that helped us along. And then, of course, the introduction of uh, not just race and gender demands, but also we took up the slogan of bargaining for the common good. Right. Yeah. And we formed alliances. Uh, well, it's not a slogan. It's a, yeah. it's a means of organizing. Right. Um, and uh, we have alliances with Latinx groups uh, in the community who are fighting gentrification, who want health care. Rutgers has a huge, you know, the medical school is now part of our university. Right. So we, we built those kinds of connections. We didn't win anything this time around our bargaining for the common good mm -hmm. uh, demand, but we hope to strengthen our ties with the community and actually push for that in the next round. When we're talking about bargaining for the common good, we're talking about, um, we see this in public schools, we see similar fights to this in, in places like Los Angeles, where the teachers, again, are focusing on race and gender demands. Talk about sort of the role of a big public university like Rutgers when we're talking about bargaining for the common good and the kind of effect you can have on an entire community by winning demands on Rutgers. Yeah, that's a great question because the model cannot just automatically be superimposed. But what we do see is how universities are located in communities and that they are one of the key gentrifiers. Mm -hmm. We also saw how um, schools that have medical schools attached to them can actually serve the medical needs of the community if we force them to do that. Affordable healthcare uh, options, clinics, and so forth, not to mention, you know, in, uh, the uh, faculty and the nurses in the Rutgers Medical School are also unionized. And so we're trying to work with them to see if their demands, which is to increase the number of nurses per patients and so on, is right. something that impacts the community, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that was the way we uh, tried to advance this. The, our primary aim, however, was to improve public education and affordable, quality public education. It's in that sense that we really built on what people did in the K-12 through fights from yeah. West Virginia to L.A., yeah. which is to say that our struggle is really part of the struggle to make good public higher education accessible to everyone. And, you know, that's not a pipe dream. These days, presidential candidates are saying that that's what they want, whether it was mm -hmm. Bernie from his last campaign or Elizabeth Warren. So I really think that there is a mood and appetite for a university, a public university, to become a force for social good, to actually put uh, the needs of the uh, people who live in the state and beyond ahead of the corporate uh, mission of the university. And that's part of what we tried to articulate, which is why we got massive public support. 81% of the New Jersey public supported our right to go on strike. And, you know, I just want to emphasize yeah. this. 
all of our dramatic gains would not have happened if we weren't strike ready. Yeah. So that's really, 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 really crucial is that we had demonstrations, we had rallies, we had op-eds in newspapers, we had advertisements in the Chronicle of Higher Education and all the rest of it. We got our story out. But if we weren't ready to walk off our jobs and bring the system to a halt, we would have won nothing. The vast majority of things we won was in the last week when we issued a last, you know, final chance contract or strike. That's when management suddenly, you know, stood up and took us seriously. And all of a sudden, millions of dollars were available to actually finance our proposal. That was Deepa Kumar of Rutgers University. As always, you can find more information about the Rutgers win and everything else we've talked about today on the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. Back in 2013, the fashion industry was shaken by a horrific spectacle, a gigantic building collapse that killed more than 1,100 workers of a Bangladesh garment factory. The Rana Plaza disaster, the worst industrial catastrophe in modern Bangladesh history, was a watershed in the sector and led to the launch of a major milestone for workplace health and safety. The Bangladesh Accord was a tripartite agreement linking labor, fashion brands, and the Bangladeshi government to institute a comprehensive health and safety regulatory regime that would inspect, monitor, and most importantly, renovate factories to bring them up to international safety standards. Six years on, the Accord has led to major breakthroughs in factory safety for a good portion of the sector, though definitely not all. There have been hundreds of factory renovations, and perhaps more importantly, it's fostered the expansion and strengthening of labor unions by facilitating the creation of worker safety committees that help hold factory bosses accountable for safety violations. Nonetheless, the Accord still faces major challenges. It covers only a portion of the country's massive garment export sector, and more troublingly, the the Accord is set for a takeover by the local government later this year. That would remove the authority of the independent nonprofit organization that currently runs it in collaboration with international labor and industry groups. And the effort to take the accord over by the Bangladesh government is currently being fought over in court. But while that plays out, the workers of Bangladesh are remembering the Rana Plaza tragedy with the anniversary this week. And six years on, they say that their factories are a whole lot safer, but workers are still struggling to get by in extreme poverty, and unions are still hampered by deep repression and anti-union violence. I talked to some of the union organizers involved with the Accord in Bangladesh and with translation help from Solidarity Center. We're going to hear now from Muzumi. She is publicity secretary at Rumana Fashion Workers Union in Ghazipur, and Sima, an organizer with Akota Garments Workers Federation, who's been in the field for about seven years. They're going to talk about the challenges of union organizing in Bangladesh, what they do from day to day, how they reach out to workers, and the challenges they faced in recent months with a massive crackdown on worker protests across the industry. What Shivapa is saying that uh, she actually, uh, sometimes she actually faces issue, uh, problem that workers are uh, unable to understand the importance of trade union. But uh, what she has learned from Solidarity Center, she has learned so many things from the Pacific uh, training, and she has actually taught those things to the workers. And workers are interested in uh, fire safety uh, issues because things are related with their lives. So uh, because they also think that uh, they come to the work and they don't want to uh, they, they want to go to go to their home safely. So they don't want any 
unsafe things in their workplace. So they are also interested in in dealing with fire safety safety issues. Okay, at the first you were saying that uh, the workers now are, can identify the issues in the factory uh, structure. So uh, whenever uh, he or she is uh, finding some um, cracks in the building, she used to, they used to notify it to the organizers or the federation. But they have told that you don't have to tell it to us. You have to uh, say it to your, the safety committee inside your factory. And the safety committee can uh, used to uh, tell it to uh, inform it to the union and or the management. Then management had to work on those safety issues or on the uh, building cracks and other things. What do you see as the main challenges that you face in the future? I would note that earlier this year, we saw a lot of strike action and there was a lot of repression of workers and a lot of really harsh treatment. That seems like it would be a setback, but how do you see things going forward? So she thinks that uh, good and bad are good things and bad things are always working side by side. We actually uh, came to a point with when we were saying, okay, things were going very well. But the situation which happened in late 2018 and early 2019, uh, the, we have seen what a, uh, we have seen uh, a huge uh, problem arise in the sector. But we think that in future we will be coping up with that, with that situation as well. So uh, they have seen that. Uh, when the uh, wage has been increased through government, then uh, the factory owners decide to retrench worker, or if you know the retrench, oh, lay off, they dismiss yes, terminated yeah. workers. Yeah, workers by saying that we don't have enough, uh, we don't have enough oh. money to keep lay off. Yeah. yeah, we don't have enough money to keep those. Uh, workers, so they uh, get retrenched uh, after the uh, minimum wage increase. So um, she thinks that in future, uh, whenever the minimum wage will increase, or minimum the whenever the wage will increase, the uh, factory owners will uh, take a step to retrench another group of workers. So uh, maybe uh, this happened this time and will never happen again, but. She also thinks that, uh, okay, uh, there is possibility that these things will continue, that again, this thing will happen whenever the wage will be declared or whenever the gadget, uh, whenever government will declare minimum wage, then uh, the workers will be uh, retrenched. How does a union respond to that? Because it seems like it will just create this cycle where every time you try to improve the conditions for the workers, the bosses simply try to just get rid of the workers. What do you do about that? She might say that uh, uh, union is actually, union or trade union federation is actually, nowadays they are prepared that anytime uh, the leaders can be uh, retrenched or the leaders can be terminated. So they actually keep second tier leadership uh, so that anytime the leaders are terminated or uh, retrench, they uh, they can be replaced. That was Mozumi and Sima talking about organizing workers in Bangladesh. We 
Recently, the workers at the New England supermarket chain Stop and Shop took to the picket lines to tell shoppers to stop and not shop as they stopped work to stage one of the largest private sector strikes in recent memory. A total of 31,000 workers across New England were on strike, and after weeks of heated contract talks, they finally reached a tentative agreement, which they will now move forward with voting on. It pretty much preserves all of the benefits, including the pensions and the health care that the workers enjoy now, and it increases wages across the board. I talked with two stop and shop workers about the strike and what they thought about the contract. Here's Jose Lopez of Boston and Celine Blaisdell, who works at the Framingham store. In order for us to survive for the future, we had to, to, to go on strike. We had no, no, no other choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what was at stake for you in sort of the collective decision to strike? For me personally, uh, I, I, they, they didn't want to uh, kill us, it, but they were going to kill the future. So if, for me personally, if I, if I wanted to stay in a union that's strong and that, that I have a future in, um, I would have to include the people that's going to come after me uh, because that's the future. And if they if they don't survive, then we don't survive. What specifically are you trying to preserve for the future workers? Well, health care, for one. Definitely the pension, because a, a, a guaranteed pension fund is the only way that you have a guarantee that you, you'll have it in the future. 401k is not a guarantee. It's just, uh, as I've said before, it's a monopoly money for Wall Street to play with. Um, there's no guarantee you'll have, ever have any, any, any of that in the future. And so the contract you're looking at right now, this tentative agreement that you're about to vote on, do you feel like the uh, you got everything you wanted or at least you have enough? What do you what do you think of it so far? I believe we did get enough um, to survive. And I think it's a brighter future for us. And uh, it only makes us stronger for the future uh, so that we, if, if there is a need or uh, more of a need for us in the future, I think we'll have the strength to do it again. Was this the first time you went on strike with this job? Personally, the second, but the first one didn't last long. It was 1985, and it only lasted for three hours. Wow. All right. Yes. And you have been with Stop and Shop for how long? 37 years. Wow. And and what do you do there exactly? I'm a receiver. Okay. I receive product. How has your job changed, and how do you think um, Stop and Shop as a company has changed since you've been there? Because you've probably been there longer than maybe a lot of your oh. coworkers. Yes, uh, night and day. Um, it was it was it was, uh, it was hands-on uh, operation. Now is more of a technology co- uh, corporation. They they want to uh, make everything as as technology as possible. So it's totally different from when I started. Are you saying there are fewer people? Like they're having more stuff that's been automated? Oh, and without a doubt, without a doubt. We uh, this particular local lost four thousand members just in three years ago, yeah. which was the last contract that we had. So we lost four thousand people. Yeah, definitely they're cutting back as much as is possible. And like in the front end is the biggest corporate. We lost people in the front end more than anywhere else. And so when you've been seeing all these cutbacks that have happened over the years, um, why do you think there weren't more strikes, I guess? And um, I guess what made this time around different in terms of these particular contract negotiations? Were they asking well, for even more givebacks or, you know? Total givebacks. Uh-huh. And in our estimate of the people that were in the front line, in our estimate, uh, in the in the negotiations, they wanted to absolutely kill the union. They wanted to get rid of the union. That was their whole focus. Because on the first proposal was all givebacks. I mean, it's things that we've had, or I've had since I started. They wanted it back. They wanted vacations. They wanted uh, holidays. They wanted time and a half. They wanted a a a, a portion of your health care and and more uh, and pay to pay more for it. 
so they, it was a total give back uh, on the proposal mm-hmm. from the day one. It seems like from the contract terms, I mean, there were things that future workers will not be getting that you guys currently have. Um, is that um, a compromise that you feel like you can live with? Or? It's a very little compromise that we had to deal with. I mean, uh, the, uh, the one thing that we, uh, that we gave up that I, you can see very uh, upfront was time and a half for new employees, uh, people that have not been hired yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be getting a premium of $1, but the second year they get a premium of $2. The third year, they'll get a pre- premium of $3, and then they'll have time and a half. So they'll have to work for to gain some stuff, but I think it was, it was, it was a, a very good compromise. You said that it was really, really important for you to preserve these benefits for future workers, but you know, as you, as you look forward, I mean, you've been there since, since the 80s, and you know, when you look forward in terms of the supermarket sector, what kind of, of future do you see there for workers? You know, someone who started out at the point that maybe you did back in the 80s, would you recommend that they go into this business? It's a, that's very hard to tell because um, there's going to be a lot of changes. Uh, I think there will be some field that you'll be, be, be able to keep that will still be a good job to have. Um, there's a lot of areas that are not going to be there, like cashiers are probably not going to be there. But um, uh, stalkers are probably still going to be there. Uh, managers, uh, department managers are still going to be there because those demand are still still going to be there. Um, people that uh, scan the, the sh- shelves and stuff like that, I think those will still be there. It'll just be a little different, but it'll, it'll still be there. The supermarket sector, it's definitely not um, all unionized. Stop and Shop may be pretty unique in that regard in terms of a chain this size. Do you feel like you know the union presence is in trouble in this sector? And, and what do you think is necessary maybe to, to keep it strong? I don't think they, that we're in trouble. It's just a matter of people understanding what the union does for you. And if, if, if people understand why we have unions and what the reason you have unions, I think people will, will want a union. It's just a matter of educating the, the, the people out there that's non-union facilities to, to see what we uh, union, uh, union facility will, ha- will give you. Uh, for the future, I think they will, we will be able to uh, get more membership. I think one of the things that the management tried to put forward as they were trying to push um, their proposals for the contract was that, look, you know, stop and shop workers, they already have it way better than other workers in the sector, and we're doing all we can to stay competitive. So we need to do these cuts in order to survive in, in this sort of competitive industry. Uh, what do you say to arguments like that when, you know, people say, oh, like, look, what are you guys complaining about? Well, and let me tell you, if, if uh, Stop and Shop is complaining about the, uh, the profit at the end of the year, I, I don't see it because $2.4 billion profit is not chump change. So they are making money, even though they're union, uh, a union facility. Not only that, but they keep buying union facilities. They just bought another facility that's union in New York. So they're going to keep buying whatever they see they're buying. And they keep buying and, and keep complaining that they're the only union company, but they, they have they're buying companies that's union. So there's no complaint there. And what do you think when they say, you know, uh, the, the, these contracts are already too generous and we need to stay competitive, like, you know, compared to the other workers in the sector? I mean, you know, wh- why can't they sacrifice as much as, you know, these non-union workers did and that sort of thing? Well, well first of all, we're union, so we're not going to sacrifice. Yeah. Second, and second of all, uh, the companies... The, the, the companies keep saying that every, every year, every time we go into negotiation, every three years they say that in the negotiations, but yet they don't reduce their price to attract customers they, they want. They keep saying it when they negotiation, they're saying they want to uh, uh, take away from us so they can bring more customers in, 
but they don't cut their prices. So that's just uh, that's just a talk on their part. There's been you know a mini sort of wave of strikes. We've been seeing a lot of strikes across the country. Do you feel like there's something about this political moment that is making workers feel a little bit bolder about going out? I don't think it's necessarily political. I think it's just that um, you, as you see the economy uh, switching, uh, the one percent is getting more and more. And people on the, at the bottom are not getting any. And that's what's the frustration. And, and it's all sector. It's just not retail. It's all sector. They see people uh, making twice or three times more than they do. And uh, they're upset about it. And that's why you've seen it. I know you say it's not political, but, you know, as we head into this 2020 election season, there are always going to be these, you know, candidates, you know, going to different towns and sort of, you know, wearing hard hats and trying to appeal <laughs> to workers. Um, do, you, do you feel like organized labor, to the extent that it is making its voice heard, do you feel like that, that's been getting a response on the national level? Yes, yes, of, of course. I mean, uh, politicians have to use whatever they can in order to get uh, votes. And uh, if, they, if they can use uh, the unions to do that, I, be, I understand they're going to do that. But it's also in our benefit that they, that they come out there and, and help us and give us a spotlight because it only brings us up uh, more when we get more uh, notice out there. So, um, you know, Boston, I guess it's known as a fairly blue state or a city. You know, we saw the Harvard <laughs> Harvard cafeteria workers going on strike. And yeah. um, do you feel like it's still kind of a, a place where organized labor is strong? Oh, absolutely. We're still strong. It's just that we, we're having uh, focused uh, attention on doing more uh, as a group rather than one individual union. But as, 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 it, as, as it's growing, as, as you see more strike, I think we get in there and uh, we're going to pull together and, and, and help each other out. There have been a lot of unions, especially service sector unions, that have been sort of coming out and you know, being a little bit more militant in their demands, like going on beyond maybe sort of traditional collective bargaining issues and doing things like speaking out on immigration. And do you feel like labor is moving in that direction or should move in that direction more? They should move in that direction only because uh, if you look at the Boston area, the, uh, the, uh, raising, raising prices of uh, food, raising prices of uh, cost of living, raising prices of the rent, stuff like that is pushing uh, uh, the, the members uh, to push their, 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 their leaders to do that because this is the only way they're going to survive. They're not going to be able to be survive or live in the city if they don't have a better pay, paycheck to take home. You know, this is one of the largest um, private sector strikes that I guess we've seen in the country in a while. Um, what do you want maybe non-union workers out there to understand um, who are also working at supermarkets, maybe thinking about unionizing their own shops? You know, what, what, what kind of message would you want to send about um, the state of organized labor? It's hard to organize, extremely hard to organize, especially in the climate that we're in now. But we keep at it and hopefully they will be able to see what we receive, and they'll be justified by learning about the union and, and, and actually take a real close look at it and make a good, uh, solid decision. Do you think this will be uh, your last strike at Stop and Shop? Or? Most likely not, but it, it, it'll be a while. It, right, it's, right. Not gonna, it's not going to be right away, but mostly, most likely not. How did you find these past few weeks on strike, and um, do you feel like you're satisfied in the end with the contract agreement that has been presented? Well, the last few weeks obviously have been very stressful, you know, for everybody involved. Um, but um, it was a great experience, now that I'm on this side of it, to have been part of something that 
big and that powerful. And I had absolute faith in my leaders, in my local union, that they would bring it to a victory. And they have. And I am extremely happy with the contract. What particularly do you feel like you guys won on? On everything. Mm -hmm. On everything. Everything we were looking to maintain, everything we had. We did maintain everything we had, and we got decent pay raises as well. So we got everything we were looking for. And as far as the new hires, they're, you know, they come in below us as far as, you know, what's offered to them, like particularly on time and a half on Sundays, but they earn it over the life of the contract. So to me, that's totally reasonable. And so overall, um, was this your first strike, first of all? Absolutely, yeah. yes. And how did it feel? I mean, I, I know well, it was a collective it, decision, it, but did you feel nervous going in? or? Well, you're going to feel nervous going into it. I mean, you're stepping into the unknown. Um, but like I said, I did have so much faith in the leadership of this union and of the five unions, like the collective bargaining. Um, but definitely in my own union and my own president, I had so much faith in him that if I felt that way, I was able to push those feelings aside because I really did believe in Jeff Poland and I really felt he would deliver for us and he did. Did it change the way you thought about your union, um, just going through this whole ordeal with them and trying to stick together, I guess, as you went through yeah. it together? Mm -hmm. It's made it stronger. Mm -hmm. much stronger than it already was, I feel. I feel that as members, we feel way more empowered and we realize how much power we have when we stick together and, um, you know, what solidarity really means and, and what it delivers in the end. So, yes, it's a, it's a much stronger union because we've gone through this together now and fought for that common goal, which we achieved. And... Yes, I, I feel it really strengthened our union. Not that it was weak, but it's very strengthened by mm -hmm. this experience mm -hmm. for all of us. How long have you been with Stop and Shop? I've been with Stop and Shop 29 years. Mm -hmm. And I am cash office manager at this store. So I have... You know, cash office compliance responsibilities and front-end responsibilities. And would you say it's a good place to work? Because of the union, it's a good place to work. Mm -hmm. But that's the only reason it's a good place to work. So I can't even comprehend working for this company without being part of the union. And I think it's hard to find other supermarkets or you've had employees there for, you know, decades and decades. Um, it's a pretty high turnover industry, retail in general. And, and so how has this, you know, one unionized chain managed to survive for so long? I think some some people might see all these non-union supermarkets out there getting more and more of the market. Do you feel like it's Stop and Shop is increasingly rare? I mean, they are, but I feel, I mean, we've survived because of the strength of, of my local in particular. I feel we have been the leaders in our area for this, and the strength of our um, leadership is the reason we have survived and we've actually gotten stronger. I mean, I 
definitely believe we need more and more unions in this country to fight for for free. Mm-hmm. We need more, and, you know, I wish everybody could feel, and it's what my mission is for people that I know that don't work in unions. Like, we have the power. Mm-hmm. You've just got to stick together, but we need more unions. Mm-hmm. We Because without it, it's impossible to find a corporate free. We need them more than we've ever needed them. What would you say to a, a young person, maybe a young worker who's uh, looking to get hired at Stop and Shop or, uh, you know, at any uh, any supermarket, union or non-union? Do you feel like it's the same kind of job that you might have been hoping to get when you first entered the sector? How much of it do you feel like has held on? Well, the landscape has totally changed, obviously, with computers, automation, and all of that. But to me, I wouldn't want it enter into the retail sector without being in union, or if you were to enter into it, I would strongly recommend trying to organize that store. That's what I recommend. You know, I know that my life is as good as it is because I've been part of the union. I know without it, I would not have the same lifestyle as I have. And where do you live? I live in Bellingham. Is there a strong union presence there? Well, we live you know, in the Northeast here, in the Boston, uh, you know, outside of Boston and all of that. I mean, it's strong union in this area, I feel. I mean, it could always be stronger, but there's stuff and shop everywhere. So stuff and shop in the town I live in, too. Did you feel like you had community support for the strike? Yes, absolutely. There was so much community support. People coming out on the picket lines with you guys and... Um... Absolutely. Other, you know, the nurses' union, the teachers' union. Yes, all of that. We had, you know, um, customers coming by, bringing us food, bringing us water, stuff like that. Yeah. One of the sort of arguments that the um, that the management pushed forward was that, um, you know, they need to stay competitive in this industry. And so that's why they were um, needing to cut back on some of the worker benefits. And they said that the contract is generally already way more generous than other workers in the sector get. What do you say to that kind of argument? We, as the workers, have built this company and made this company as successful as it is. They have the number one share in the marketplace. Because of us, they continue to hold the number one share. So they did not need it. They just wanted it because it was just pure free. And we're better, and we make them better because we are union. And we were union long before they ever came along. So we are the reason that they are as successful as they are because when you're in a union, I mean, there's a lot of dedication here. We've been seeing a lot of strike actions going on around the country, um, both private and the public sector. Do you feel like this strike was a part of that? It was definitely one of the bigger ones that we've seen. Yes, absolutely. And I, I don't see how we will not inspire other workers to take a stand and stand up and say enough is enough. I absolutely feel that they can look at us and feel good and feel empowered and feel strong and feel the strength and feel, you know, and know that we're there to back all of them. Do you think unions in general should, I mean, this is the first um, strike that you went on in in your many decades on the job over there. Um, Do you feel like unions should 
be bolder in striking? Do you think they should strike more often? No, I do not feel we should strike more often. I, I think we have given and given and given at every contract over many, many years. And this year, they were just so greedy, they just wanted to gut our contract. It was a union-busting proposal is, is what it was. And we had to take a stand if we wanted to survive as a union. Do you feel like you've made a lasting change in the way the company works um, with this strike, given that it was so large? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. Absolutely. I feel very good about what we've done. And, um, you know, we paralyzed the company for mm-hmm. sales. And regardless of going forward, I know there's going to be more automation, so on and so forth. But they can have automation all they want. What they underestimated greatly was that the customers stood with us and supported us. Those were a couple of the Stop and Shop strikers, and we will post links to more information about their strike and new contract at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, are social media kidfluencers actually workers? Friend of the podcast, Julia Carey Wong, has a feature story on the subject at The Guardian titled, It's Not Play If You're Making Money, How Instagram and YouTube Disrupted Child Labor Laws. And uh, that is exactly what it's about. She examines the ways that the work that kids do on YouTube and other social media sites skirts the edges of California's notoriously strict child labor laws. Julia writes, quote, They open boxes, play with toys, pull pranks, and make slime. They sing, they dance, and they remember their lines. Subscribe to my channel. Children are among the biggest stars of YouTube and Instagram, earning millions through influencer deals with blue chip brands or YouTube's partner program, which gives creators a cut of ad revenues. Where network television gave us Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, social media produced identical twins Alexis and Ava McClure. Macaulay Culkin's million-dollar mug has given way to the toothy grin of Ryan, a seven-year-old whose toy reviews made him the highest-paid YouTube star of 2018. The child of actors niche, once occupied by the likes of Drew Barrymore, is now filled by starlets such as six-year-old Everly Rose, whose adorable antics are a key attraction to her parents' massively popular YouTube vlogs. Also, The word vlog is impossible to pronounce. Anyway, all that cuteness is not getting paid. California labor law was designed specifically around child performers, requiring their parents to put aside money for them, ruling that the money they earn is theirs, not their parents, and putting serious limits on the amount of time they can spend at work. Yet the social media economy often falls into some gray areas on these laws. Quote, I don't care if it's simply unboxing presents, that's work, Sheila James Cool, a, fa- a former child star and co-author of the 1999 law that overhauled California's labor protections for child performers, told Julia. It is not play if you're making money off of it. Cool is a former state legislator and now an L.A. County supervisor, and she is not impressed with claims that kids are just having fun, or that, as one set of stage parents put it, we work, the girls do not. The kids are the main attraction, yet the money they earn goes straight to their parents or guardians. Aside from the requirement to put money aside, Julia writes, quote, The law also required state courts to ratify the contracts of child performers. 
a provision lobbied for by Walt Disney himself that codified the state's distrust of stage parents to act in the best interests of their children, explained David Pierce, co-chair of the Entertainment Law Section of the Beverly Hills Bar Association. Other legal protections followed. Child performers must obtain work permits, and there are strict regulations limiting their working hours, requiring rest and recreation time when they're on set, and mandating that work not interfere with their education. Producers on film sets are responsible for safeguarding the health, welfare, safety, and moral well-being of the children on set, Pierce said, which includes screening the backgrounds of the cast and crew and ensuring the children aren't exposed to age-inappropriate sex or violence. Is anyone checking on the YouTube stars, though? A state legislator tried in 2018 to update the law to cover the employment of a minor in social media advertising. But what if the kids aren't only being paid in cash? What other details are different about social media influencing? The law hasn't quite caught up yet, but one thing's for sure, it's hard work. My pick for this episode is Academia, Grassroots Organizations, and Debt Toward a Genuine Collaboration by Ann Larson. What's described in the title sounds like a three-way car wreck, but I must say, as a self-professed part-time academic, I spend most of my life toggling between being a penurious scholar and being an ink-stained wretch, and neither a vocation really pays a living wage, so I was refreshed to see Larson's clarion call for a revival of solidarity between labor and academia. As an activist with the Debt Collective, she operates at the nexus between education and debt by campaigning to abolish student debt as a social scourge. And it's not that academics aren't viscerally aware of the connection between their professional lives and the groaning weight of their debt burden, but what if that intersection of economic hardship and intellectual aspiration were transformed from something to be ashamed of into a new platform for organizing for solutions? Larson traces Debt Collective's history to the heady days of Occupy Wall Street. It was incubated as part of a grassroots initiative by organizers seeking to defy Wall Street and financialization by launching a mass movement to abolish debt of all kinds, but especially student debt. And this snowballed into the Strike Debt Campaign, which has been organizing student debtors ever since to resist predatory lending attack the for-profit college racket and call for stronger regulation as well as a cancellation of all debts across the board. And not surprisingly, canceling student debt and free public higher education are two major campaign talking points that we're hearing in the lead-up to the 2020 elections. So the strike debt campaign was a small step towards creating a class politics from the debt crisis, and it marked the first attempt, quote, to create a mass organization for people in debt. We regard mass indebtedness as a characteristic feature of neoliberal capitalism and believe that the broad social transformation must come from the bottom up, close quote. Larson calls for mass action not only in the streets but on campus, linking the work of scholars and organizers in the project of social transformation and using student debt as a starting point. Student debt is a problem that embodies the profound injustice of modern capitalism, and so it's a good launchpad for this movement-building work. I mean, what better illustration of how public goods have been co-opted and corrupted by the elite plutocrats than the prohibitive cost of higher education today? Like healthcare, the pursuit of knowledge has been absorbed into a financial hegemony that ensures that many of us will find our careers controlled basically for the rest of our lives by Wall Street's dominion. That undermines the public role of the scholar and exacerbates the social inequality that academic institutions have a duty to help resolve. Larson argues, quote, if we want such movements to succeed, collaborations between scholars and organizers are critical. 
It's also critical, I would add, to tackle the diabolical contradiction that progressive scholars get locked into. Despite their ideological leanings and beliefs in social justice, for many, success in academia means climbing up a professional hierarchy that is built on the debt and exploitation of your very own students as well as yourself. Larson notes that, quote, in our era of austerity, educational institutions that run on debt are in conflict with those who critique such models or who are working to concretely transform them. All the more reason for activists who share many of the goals of radical scholars to work in collaboration with those who may have access to resources but whose institutional affiliations may limit them in other ways, unquote. So one way to redeem the contradiction of academia and the left is to turn your institution's resources into a seedbed for radical movement building. Larson adds that directing institutional resources to organizing could be part of a long overdue admission on the part of academics that the distinction between thinking and doing and the hierarchy implied is false, unquote. And, of course, that's not just an admission, but a form of reparations. If an institution is built on unjust takings, after all, then writing this historical wrong must be part of the critical mission of today's scholars. So there needs to be an active redistribution of material resources to the organizations, activists, and communities who, with the support and solidarity of the academic community, and, of course, perhaps the aid of an academic endowment, work at the front line of economic struggles. There's a fundamental contradiction and hypocrisy in the liberal educational institution that that imposes oppression and exploitation on people on the outside. Pursuing social justice through campus activism and outreach into the community is one way to help resolve this. Larson points to an initiative led by University of California, Los Angeles to promote a, quote, reciprocal relationship between the university and surrounding communities through, quote, partnering with organizers and activists and providing unrestricted funds to organizations that conduct critical work on behalf of the dispossessed, including debtors, those displaced by gentrification, and the formerly incarcerated, unquote, all of which Los Angeles, the community surrounding UCLA, has in abundance. Basically, you provide a structure of collaboration, you listen to community members, and you trust them with the resources to do the grassroots work that only they can lead, be it organizing workers, campaigning for social reforms, or starting a social service agency in their neighborhood. That's all stuff that academics can research, can help inform, but ultimately they are products that must emanate from the people themselves. Larson, in fact, cautions against academics merely studying social movements like rare specimens rather than collaborating with them. It's mutually alienating to delegate activism to the realm of research rather than creative civic engagement. Academics need the humility and the foresight to let the public lead. The problem of student debt, and I suppose all forms of social debt, is an ethical crisis for students, academics, and communities. But it's also a struggle that brings together groups of people who have been trained all their lives to think of each other as fundamentally different, academia and workers. Traditionally, they've been defined as opposites of each other, as class antagonists. Imagine what might happen when we join forces in solidarity and recognize that the divide drawn between the world of knowledge and the world of labor is simply a false dichotomy. If we recognize the real enemy among us, we'd figure out who really owes what to whom, and we could finally get together and start settling accounts. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch us in another two weeks. You can find all of our archives at descentmagazine.org. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good. And let us know if there is a strike going on in your neighborhood or if you're thinking of starting one or if you have something to say about a strike going on anywhere in the world. 
Let us know at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can get us on email at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.